Welcome to Relatable 2020. We are excited to kick off the new year with a compelling interview. I speak with Dan Perlmutter, Director of Olympic Sport Performance at Duke University. If you are a high achiever, a student athlete, a parent, a high school coach, a college recruiter, this interview is for you. Dan explains how a holistic approach to athletic performance is a game changer. You'll hear about the recruiting process and how soft skills will help you stand out. For me, this interview is really special because it covers a lot of ground. He gives great advice and tips for students and also talks candidly about his path to working in college athletics. Enjoy this episode. so much for sitting down with us at Relatable. Uh, it's really nice to meet you and you're a friend of our, my rock star producer Missy who now has become a booker in addition to her producing talents. She's very talented. She is. Many, woman of many talents. <laughs> and I'm excited to talk to you. Um, you are the, uh, not the, I guess there's a few of you, but strength and conditioning coach at Duke. Is that the the right title. <laughs> yeah, we've actually kind of rebranded in the yeah. last few years into sports performance. Okay. Um, it's the same thing that it's always been, but it encompasses a lot more now. Um, so we bring in some different disciplines than we used to uh, to the different teams that we work with. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we should just start there with just tell me a little bit about your job and what it's like maybe a day in the life for those that aren't familiar with what a sports performance coach is or, sure. or even in the university setting, what, that, what that's like. Sure. So I am the director of Olympic sports performance at Duke. Um, and what Olympic sports means for people that are outside the collegiate athletics world is everybody but football and basketball. Um, okay. So at Duke, we have three training facilities. We have a football facility, we have a basketball facility, and we have an Olympic sports facility. And on the Olympic sports side, we have 24 teams. Um, wow. So a lot of your team sports, individual sports that you can think of from high school up through college and the pros, soccer, baseball, <clears throat> lacrosse, golf, tennis, swimming and diving, fencing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I have a big staff. We have six full-time coaches, and we have at least two or three full-time interns every year. Um, we have sports science people. Uh, we work with the athletic medicine folks and sports psychology and sports nutrition. So we've got this big kind of network yeah. of support people around each team. Um, and each person on my staff has anywhere from two to three or four teams that they directly coach. Okay. Um, so I directly work with baseball, men's soccer, and then men's and women's fencing. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then, um, so given that and everything you just described, I suspect there's really no typical day. Yeah, <laughs> you so wear a lot of hats. <laughs> there's so much variety. Yeah. Um, how often are you interacting with the kids and the students? Mm -hmm. And I mean, at your level, I suspect you're doing a lot of leadership of, of coaches that are interacting with kids too. So Yeah, it's really important for me to be with the student athletes every day. Yeah. Um, and at the college level, there's no off-season for what we do. Um, there are certainly in-season and off-season parts of the year for competition mm -hmm. for the athletes themselves. And I, I use athletes and student-athletes interchangeably. Okay, um, yeah. But for what we do, 
the training programs are year-round. Um, we're focusing on different things at different parts of the year. So in-season, our workouts might be different than they are in the off-season, but we're still with the athletes every day. Um, so an, a typical day, I'll be involved in multiple practice sessions with the different sports, mm-hmm. warm-ups and cool-downs and speed development, conditioning, out on the field, for example, with one of my teams. And then I'll also be in the weight room, obviously, working on strength and power development and recovery and mobility and a bunch of other things there. Um, and then I'm also working with the coaching staff for each sport. Um, as I mentioned, I'm working with the athletic medicine folks, so the athletic trainers and the physical therapists and the uh, ortho docs mm-hmm. uh, to work on recovery programs and injury management plans and rehab plans and those kinds of things. But then I also interact with as I said, sports psych, sports nutrition, we have all these different kind of niches of things that the athletes might need. Mm -hmm. Um, And the program that we put together at Duke is awesome because we all work very collaboratively. Um, And what that means is we all have to talk and meet and and share ideas and exchange stuff every day because we all want to be on the ground with the kids every day. Mm -hmm. Um, My position over the last few years somebody else may have kind of pulled back a little bit from that daily stuff to do more management and administrative stuff. What I've tried to do is stay really, really grounded and do all of that administrative stuff, but not have it take me away from why I do what I do, which is, you know, I want to be there to help people. And you mentioned last night, we got to talk a little bit. You're just talking about how much you love your job Mm -hmm. and how it's like, you, you feel like you're blessed in the sense that you get to go to work and do this job. So what is it that makes this job for you personally, like that kind of that shower test where you get up and you feel like, you know, this is going to be a great day. Like what are the things about the role that make you feel that way? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And obviously thinking about this, I've been trying to kind of put my thumb on a couple of specific things and it's, it's hard. And I look at this as a good thing. It's hard for me to identify really specific, high level philosophical reasons why I love doing what I do. But I can tell you this, I walk in the door of our facility every day and have that wow moment every single day. Um, And it's a facility that I was able to design. So part of it is kind of that personal connection to being in a place that we really made. But I have that kind of kid at Disneyland moment when I come in the door every day. Um, and, and whether I'm just walking in and the room's empty or I'm walking in and there's already teams training yeah. um, or I'm walking in and just saying hi to somebody that I get to pass, you know, with, a, you know, kind of a casual glance every day. Like there's there's some pull factor for me yeah. in that athletics complex when I get up in the morning and go in every day. I am I'm as excited now as I was, you know, almost 11 years ago when I got to do. So I think a lot of it is is the people that are there. Um, there's really, really good people surrounding the student athletes there. Mm-hmm. Um, Duke is special. Um, and, you know, people in our peer group for academic and athletic schools would all say that their places are special. At least I would hope they would. Right, right. Um, and my colleagues around, around the ACC and around the country certainly all say the same thing. And that's awesome that they feel that way. Um, because I think it speaks to the quality of what we're doing at all these different places to help these kids it we're creating places that people get drawn to and if they can't put their thumb on exactly what it is I think that's even better because it means it's probably not just one thing right Um, it's just it it's a place that you feel drawn to a place that you feel like you want to be 
feel like you're getting better. You feel like you're learning. You feel like you're growing. You feel like you have people around you that care about you. Yeah. So let me t- ask a question just from a student athlete perspective. You've mentioned like with those teams, are I'm just curious, are there individual plans per athlete? So given whatever sport they're in, you know, whatever they're trying to do within their sport to grow and develop. So does each person have their own customized plan? Yeah, it's a really good question. So our field has evolved quite a bit, um, certainly over the last 10 years, but even in the last few years, um, the, the advent of, of monitoring and wearable sports mm-hmm. science tech right. is a, the biggest thing in our field right now yeah. at the pro level, at the college level even with, with younger athletes, the ability to track specific metrics, specific measurements of things that people are doing while they're doing them, to some degree is changing the game. We're trying to be at the forefront of that, but not being the people that just look down the sidewalk and see something shiny and pick it up and say, well, let's use this, right? We're trying to be very thoughtful and very critical about how we use those new interventions. And that's like analytics. Um, You're talking about there's data and analytics that you get from the wearables, that you get from all this, and then you start to look at that information and you can say, okay, based on this, we're going to implement this or we're making these decisions. Right, and the kind of cool-looking part about analytics is people that get to see stats in splashy graphics on TV, right? The logistical part of it the actual implementation of me- of measuring those things, monitoring monitoring those things, making sure the batteries are charged, making sure the kids have them in, making sure the vests get into the laundry and get returned to the locker the next day. The nuts and bolts and kind of boots on the ground piece of it is where we operate 95% of the time. And then the 5% where we're actually presenting data is kind of the icing on the cake. So what we're trying to figure out, and this speaks to kind of the customized plans, we're trying to figure out how much of the data that we collect with that stuff is meaningful and how much is kind of detritus and just mm-hmm. saying, yep, everybody's doing this. We already knew that. We've got the eyeball test in place. We've got qualified, experienced coaches that are telling us the same thing that this monitoring device is now telling us. So we don't necessarily need to look at all of these pieces of info. These two or three are important. Right. So what we're trying to figure out And one of the things that I do at work, kind of a little bit extra piece of what I do at work is I sit on our sports science working committee, is we're trying to kind of be the gatekeepers of those vendors and those pieces of tech and saying, all right, is this meaningful? Is it worth it for this team to spend the money on this thing? Right. Or is this something that we can gather with, you know, a more efficient, more effective, cheaper, you know, uh, more realistic version of information? Because ultimately what that data should be doing is it should be telling you more about how each one of those athletes is developing. Yeah. And to, to bring it back to the question, what we're looking to do every day is we're trying to maximize each person's potential to be better when they play. It's not as simple as saying, hey, let's get them stronger in the weight room or let's have this person's 40 time get better or let's have this person's vertical jump get better. Those specific measurements, those specific exercises, those specific tests, are just tools to get them better for when they play. Mm -hmm. And I think what we find from sport to sport, obviously there's a huge variety. So for some teams and some rosters and some sports, you have training programs that may look very similar across an entire roster. You might have 30 kids on a team and most of them are doing pretty much the same thing. And that's effective and that's valuable and it gives you meaningful data and you can see that they're getting better. 
And then on other teams and other rosters in other sports, you may find that you have to hyper-specialize from athlete to athlete. Right. But it, it's not necessarily beholden just to one sport. It might just be that group of kids that you have. Right. Right. You might have a group of kids one year where you have some kids that are really experienced in their training and some that are really inexperienced. So you can't throw the same workout plans at them right. um, because you're not going to get enough out of the really good kids. And the younger yeah. kids or the kids who aren't experienced aren't ready for some of the more right. advanced stuff. So I think that the art of what we do mm-hmm. is knowing the athletes really well. Yeah, I was going to say, um, just managing to the situation, right? Because yeah. that's the, and that is customization, really, being able to identify what, what those needs are. Absolutely. So if I'm a student athlete and I'm in high school and I want to be a college athlete, yep. from your perspective, given all of your experience, and we'll talk a little bit more about that with your background and how you got into this job, because I think that's interesting, too, for people is, like, if I'm interested in sports conditioning or sports performance, how can I do that? But mm-hmm. if I'm a student athlete and I and I want to play sports in college, right? Mm-hmm. What is, and that, it's just an easy question, but what's, what advice do you have? What are some of the things that you see uh, in your talent, you know, as they're coming on board? What are the, like, success factors or what are the things that, the recipe that, you know, can help a student athlete achieve that goal if they want to play in college? Sure. Yeah, I think the first thing to understand is that if you – are a high school athlete and you want to continue to play one of your sports, hopefully you're playing multiple sports. High school kids play a lot of sports. Um, if you want to play one of your sports in college, there is a place for you to play. I don't do direct recruiting. I'm not the recruiting coordinator for any of our teams. Um, and the way that the NCAA sets things up with, um, certainly at the Division One level, um, I can't speak as much to the Division Two and Division Three level, um, but the way that it sets things up with who is allowed to recruit and coordinate right. that, that type of stuff, um, there are specifically designated people on each staff that are allowed to do it, and then other people are not allowed to proactively go out and find kids. Right. Um, so I'm not one of those people that goes out and find kids, but I work very closely with the different sports and the staff members on those coaching staffs that do that stuff. Mm-hmm. So what I hear from them pretty much across the board is that, when they recruit kids or they work camps or they go to conventions or they meet people at games or whatever, their message is, is usually this to, to younger athletes. If you want to play, there's somewhere for you to play. But the challenge for families of high school athletes is identifying what's realistic mm-hmm. and trying to identify that as early on in the process as possible. Um, and we kind of talked about this last night yeah. where yeah. you know you could waste thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars traveling to places that are not realistic shots for you to play. Right. Um, but if you are realistic about your level of talent and your commitment to doing what it takes to get to the next level as a college athlete, then there is a place for you. And maybe it's not a Power 5 Division One program. Maybe it's a mid-major school. Maybe it's not a mid-major Division One program. Maybe it's a Division Two school or mm-hmm. maybe it's a Division Three school. So I think with, you know, everything at our fingertips with Google and everything else on the web now, going out and getting as much information as you can before you start spending tons of money traveling and getting yourself recruited and putting these expensive videos together and, you know, having these consultants come in and help you being realistic about where you're likely to be able to be competitive is really important to know. Well, it's interesting too. And I could be naive in this. I feel like it's one of those things in my mind that, for it to be successful, and maybe this you can 
teach me something here that most kids are tapped to, to go play somewhere, right? What, regardless of the division. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there are people proactively trying to manage the system seems like hard, futile almost, that, that it's really, you want to be tapped. I mean, I guess there's ways around that, but it seems like that's the way kids could play. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Just because um, I want my kid to play and I get a video package and then I take him to school, right? Does that really work? Isn't there a system in which all this works and happens and... Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's being open to having those conversations with as many people in that sport Mm -hmm. as you can. Mm -hmm. You know, with some of the newer changes and some of the NCAA regulations around the ages that kids are allowed to, you know, have conversations with coaches or really it's the other side. It's where college coaches are allowed to come talk to kids. Um, in some sports, um, camps are a bigger place now where kids can get noticed. And they can get noticed at younger ages. Simply because in some sports, coaches are not allowed to come in and talk to kids before they get to their junior year in high school now. Right. Or if kids go and bring themselves to a college campus and look around, they can go and look around on their own, but they ne- might not be able to get access to even an informal conversation with the right. sport coach. So obviously the you know, the, the, the college teams know this. Yeah. And so they're doing more and more camps because at a camp you can invite everybody. And as long as you're doing things the right way, which hopefully everybody is, and you're giving the same opportunities to everybody at that camp to display their skills and play and show off and do all that, then the coaches that work that camp and the coaches that host that camp get a view of a lot of different athletes at different ages where they might not be able to have that kid in their family in a one-on-one conversation on campus. Right. So they're learning as much as they can about that kid in a camp setting as opposed to having the kid on campus one-on-one talking right. to them and, and kind of getting things that way. Okay. Um, so we talked about just identifying what's right for you. Mm-hmm. And then also um, I think the camp thing is interesting, like putting yourself out there and being visible. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other characteristics? So I'm, I'm, we were just talking about this, about my passion for soft skills. So I'm curious about yeah. – kids that are articulate and are able to communicate with you and look you in the eye and that can collaborate effectively and that have a sense of confidence about them outside of just being able to perform the technical discipline, sports or otherwise. So I'm sure. curious, what are some of the behaviors you see? What, and then obviously from a strength and conditioning perspective, what, what do you like to see? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. And it's a, it's a conundrum that we deal with at Duke quite a bit, partly because it's hard to get for kids to get in academically (laughs) it's a really good school um and we're not the type of place where we're helping kids in that part like they they have to get in they've they've got to qualify they've got to have good grades they that part can't be fake in any way um and also they have to you know for a kid to get a spot on a duke team they've got to be an elite athlete they've got to be an elite student Um, and that's kind of a given what that means for us for our talent pool our total talent pool for each sport is very small in terms of the kids that we can realistically offer scholarships to or offer spots on a team to. Um, so then, you know, that begs the question of how do you make yourself stand out? Right. You know, and if you listen yeah. to, you know, folks from the Navy SEALs, for example, talk about, you know, being, you know, outstanding in a group of outstanding people. Right. <laughs> like, right. How do you stand out when everybody around you is outstanding? Right. Um, that's tough. Duke is a very specific place. Um, there's thousands and thousands of colleges around the country. Um, and each one of them, will have a specific set of qualities that they are looking for when they go out to find kids. Mm -hmm. Each sport is gonna identify 
physical attributes that are important. Okay. And I think as an athlete at the high school level and as a parent of an athlete at high school level, the more conversations you can have with college coaches in that sport about what those physical qualities are, the better. Interesting. If you're a soccer player, there are certain things that you need to be good at to be able to make the leap from high school to college um, and that you already have to have in your wheelhouse, right? We're going to help you develop a lot more, obviously, when you get to college. But if we're looking for high, uh, high school soccer players at a, an elite level that we want to bring into our program, they've already got to have some basic stuff developed, mm -hmm. right? Baseball is very different, different set of physical qualities, different set of skills mm -hmm. that are needed. And we're talking about the hard stuff, not the soft stuff right now. Yes, so, but, for sure. But to be able to identify those when the athlete is still in high school and have them work on those things is yeah. really important because they've got to be able to display that when they play in front of college coaches, right? And that, again, is kind of a given for us because – the people that we're looking at, we're almost assuming that they're at that level already, sure. right? If we're talking about the other side of it, where somebody might not know exactly what they need to work on right. and what they need to display to a coach. So I think the more conversations that a family can have with college-level folks, as soon as they're allowed to and they're able to get that information, the better. And like we said, a lot of times you get that information at camps now. Okay. We, you know, Specifically, I spend a lot of time with our baseball team, and we talk about intangibles mm -hmm. and what we're talking about soft skills right. essentially the same thing we talk about that way more than we talk about physical uh, measurable specific assets or physical capabilities or physical skills or talent or that kind of thing because we know that the intangibles are the things that drive our culture and you know we've got a saying where culture eats strategy for lunch and yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we certainly didn't come up with it. I'm sure we stole it from somebody else. Um, but we really live that in Duke baseball, for example. Culture eats strategy for lunch. We spend more time working on our culture yeah. than we work on skill development. Um, now, we are fortunate to have guys that are very talented by the time they get to us. Right. But everybody's talented by the time they get to this level. So, again, sure. how do you make that group of guys stand out among a group of people that are already outstanding? And we really believe that it's culture. So what does that mean? We're talking big picture stuff, 60,000-foot right. view. Well, then the kid says, well, what am I supposed to do to get better at culture? Right. You know, I'm, I'm doing air quotes yeah. right now, right? Yeah. We really believe in strong character being a huge piece of what a young athlete can bring to a new team. Um, caring about the people around them. We talk about servant leadership as one of our major, major things. And very tangible servant leadership, meaning that you care about the people around you more than you care about yourself, but you don't just say that because it's cool to tweet that. You actually operate that way every day. Right. That when you wake up in the morning, the first person you think about is not yourself. When you get dressed and you get up to the field or you get to the weight room, you're not there to get better because you want to get drafted. You're there to get better because you want to make the team better. Right. And if all 40 of our guys at this time of year and then 35 in the spring, if all of our guys approach their day like that every day and legitimately do that every day and legitimately think that way every day, then they're all feeding into that really strong culture. And then, you know, obviously where I'm going is that culture makes us all better and it makes them more draftable and it makes them, performance is better. their performance is better. It makes them develop right. faster. It makes them develop more effectively. 
because they are in an environment that um, allows those things to come out more organically, yeah. right? Um, so that if I'm trying to get this person next to me better and this person's trying to get me better, we're automatically making each other better athletes. Yeah. But we're doing it for what we think is a better reason um, and doing it for in, in a way that we think is a better way. Um, the other thing that we talk about um, that feeds into that stuff is um, being humble and displaying gratitude um, and approaching every day with gratitude. And I think that that is the lens that I look through every day and that I try to impart on our coaches and impart on our athletes and kind of infect everybody around me with is that, that sense of gratitude. And gratitude involves a ton of perspective. Right. Um, so we've got these like, you know, annoying little catchphrases, like we said, culture eats strategy. Right. And we, we also say that gratitude overwhelms entitlement. Um, we've got a talent pool of kids that oftentimes come from, you know, well off families and, a, you know, pretty, um, pretty Early comfortable athletes, lives. Right. They've been right? special their whole life. They've right? been special their whole life. Um, a special school. And I'll, I'll talk about another piece of this yeah. in a minute that connects some of that. Um, so that they often don't have as much perspective on how they fit into the real world. Right. Um, and you get that kind of big fish and little pond leaping into the little fish in the big pond. And that, right. that can hit that can hit with a thunk pretty right. hard for kids. Um, but if kids focus on um, being thankful for what they have yeah. and, and looking through that lens every day and, and not necessarily like we said in the 60,000 foot view, but just saying thank you to people and um, trying as hard as they can and being coachable. I mean, if we want to talk specific soft skills, be coachable. Really wanting and being eager to learn and being eager to have somebody tell you why you're not doing something well or why you're wrong or being eager to hear the word no, which a lot of our kids haven't heard a lot of until they get to us. Right. right? Um, If kids look through that lens every day, they're hungry to get better, right? They're not satisfied with where they are, and they might be one of the best players in the country already, but it's not enough for them because they, they're eager to learn how to get better and eager to learn how to develop. So I think that gratitude piece is huge. If, if you're focusing on gratitude, you don't have time to act entitled. Right. You know? Right. Um, and, and it's be mindset. Right, you and know, to be it's honest. A, it's an intentional mindset. Absolutely, and, and that's a great word. It has to be very intentional. Yeah. And that's the next piece is, what we do, everything we do when we train and we develop these younger, these young kids is, is very purposeful. Mm-hmm. And we talk about having them work on doing things with intent. Yeah. Um, we've added a lot more mindfulness into what we do for a lot of our teams. We have yeah. yoga instructors and mindfulness coaches. Um, the athletes usually like the phrase mental performance right. <laughs> better, than, yeah. better than mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it sounds cooler. Um, it's it's the exact same thing, people. Um, but it, that involves everything that we're talking about. Um, it involves gratitude. It involves perspective. It involves being humble. It involves wanting to get better. It involves accepting failure and learning from failure. And... I mean, I would even take it a step further and wanting to fail sometimes, yes. wanting to fail and like finishing with a failure sometimes is very, very healthy. Yeah. Because if you think that your, your shit don't stink, pardon the French, you can edit that out. Um, if you think <laughs> it doesn't stink, our- <laughs> then you're, you're not going to be in a mental place where you are willing to try to get better. 
because you think you've figured it out already. And I can tell you this, I've been doing this for almost two decades and there's not an 18 or 19 year old in the world that's figured it out yet. (laughs) I haven't figured it out. I'm 43 and I'm not even close to figuring it out. And what I love about that, everything you just described, what I love, and it's just, it applies regardless of what you want to do. Absolutely. It certainly is applicable in the confines of an elite sports program. And and there's, what I love about it is there's very uh, intentional ways or ways that you can uh, collect that information and have it available to people in the context of sports. So sure. it, like there's this real connection of like, if you do this, you get this. Yeah. I think it's also very appropriate in professional and the corporate space. You know, you see the same thing. So everything you've just described in terms of that mindset and we haven't talked about hard work yet. So I think that's probably a component. I'm guessing that was one of the next pieces work yeah. ethic and, um, and that, that belief that, you know, that the sum is really better um, than the individual part. And, and yep. it's just true regardless of, you know, where you're sitting. So, Finally. you know, we've been talking about a lot of kind of high-level concept yes. stuff. And I have the opportunity every day to look at a lot of high-level, high-tech stuff yeah. when I work and see athletes that are incredibly talented and coaches who are incredibly talented and successful. I still believe that the honor in working hard is at the basis of everything that we do Mm -hmm. that there is dignity in putting in a hard day of work Mm -hmm. um a lot of that's from my parents and my grandparents i'm from very kind of humble means very blue collar very very poor two generations ago um people who really believed in the dignity of hard work and i think we've you know, I'm not going to make any like big societal claims right. in this uh, talk today, but I, you know, you yeah. see that that's kind of disappearing a little bit, and and pe- because there's so many shortcuts, there's so many life hacks. I'm doing the air quotes again, yeah. right? And people love life hacks. I am blessed to be in a field where you cannot life hack right. anything. That's the you can't do sports, it. Right? That I mean, that yeah. might be a. a the best summary of why I love what I do. It is it is unhackable. Yeah. It is unhackable. It everything will be exposed, right? Um, and all the great stuff about you will be exposed. Right. And all of your willingness to put in your work will be exposed because sports happen in a spotlight. Literally in a spotlight. You know, it's a public setting. Right. But also the stuff that you're not willing to do will eventually play out. Yeah. Um, sports have a great way of kind of vetting out <laughs> People it's that aren't willing to put right? the work That's in. It's I the great equalizer. My husband says all the time. Well, when I was in yeah. grad school years ago, uh, I took a great sports psych class, and we talked about how younger kids for certain parts of their lives early on will self-select out of sports and how young kids decide and their parents decide, oh, I don't really like this. I'm not really good at this sport. I prefer that sport. And that's kind of how things happen when kids are younger. And then the higher level the sport goes – the more that selection process happens by the sport and the less it happens by the kid in the family. The sport selects the kids out because the sport says, you're not good enough anymore. You better do something else. Or the sport says, you're not willing to put the work in anymore and it's obvious now and all these other kids are willing to put the work in and that's why you're not good enough. Um, So, and I believe that 100%. Um, I thought that was fascinating when I learned it, you know, almost 20 years ago now. but it is 100% true. If it, When you get to this level of competition where I'm fortunate enough to be able to kind of help out a bit, um, 
people that are not willing to put in even a basic level of hard work every day and get outside their comfort zone. That's the next big piece I was going to talk about with kids. People that cannot function outside their comfort zone aren't going to last very long. Um, That's probably kind of going back to the stuff that we look for when we're looking for kids and what kinds of qualities and soft skills they can have. Um, If you can picture an infographic, so you picture a big board with a big circle in it that says progress, and then inside that circle there's a little tiny circle that says comfort zone. My job basically is to get people outside that little circle into the big circle, right? Progress happens outside your comfort zone. That's another little takeaway, yeah. annoying, you know, one-liner that people <laughs> might might want or they might hate. But that's it's true. Yeah. Progress happens outside your comfort zone. So one of the ways that I help people develop is I help them get outside their comfort zone every single day, right? In every some, single day. In some way. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. Work on something that they're not good at. Um, train through some sort of perceived obstacle. Uh-huh. Um, look at something that's difficult as an opportunity in other words hey i can do this today i've never been able to do that as opposed to oh my god that's something i've never been able to do before you know i don't know if i can do that so try to change their mindset about something new and whether that happens in the squat rack or it happens on the field in a conditioning session or it happens in a warm-up or it happens while we're doing our core work or it happens where we're doing a team challenge or whatever my goal every day is to help our kids get outside their comfort zone because that's where progress happens. Um, so as younger people, if you have the opportunity to grasp that concept at the high school level and you can show people that you are willing to get outside your comfort zone, and I'll tell you this, teenagers are probably the worst at it because it inevitably means that you don't look very cool. Right. And I've got a teenager now and I've got a preteen now, so I'm speak to this very personally um yeah teenagers do not want to do things that don't make them look cool or specifically make them look very uncool Mm -hmm. but getting outside your comfort zone necessarily means that you're putting yourself out there and making yourself vulnerable to people around you and that's why i think the culture at our program is really strong because we embrace that and we nourish that and then when people make themselves vulnerable it makes them better because they know that the people around them are going to help them with that progress. Like it pays dividends. Yeah, and, and the other thing that it does is it expands your comfort zone. Right. And that's the big piece. So it's not for me, if you think of the big circle and the small circle, it's not just getting outside the small circle as much as you can. It's making the small circle way bigger. Yeah. So now your comfort zone involves, you know, thousands and thousands of new things that it didn't used to involve. Yeah. Um, it just puts you in a mind frame where you're willing to challenge yourself every day. Yeah. And, you know, there's always this... Thing around stress and recovery and that mm-hmm. stress is a good thing right and yeah. that you need to have that kind of discomfort in order to be better right it's very technical in terms of muscle development but sure. then I think I believe that to be true of your whole <laughs> right your whole the way you approach life and when you yes. are uncomfortable you grow and we've talked to several kids on this podcast and one of the things that comes up a lot is people having to push themselves through fear. Yeah. Whether it's someone going into theater or whether it's someone trying out for a team when they had no athletic background. Or we've had people talk about going on trips by themselves and, and like, um, you know, charitable trips and just different ways that they're trying to make themselves better. Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a great quality. And you, unless 
you have to force yourself. No one else can do it for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the one that has to really push. And when you do that, great things, it's like a ripple effect, and you'll start to see that, that turnover of that. Well, you know, in my world, the stress piece mm-hmm. that's involved in yeah. performing in public is one of the major challenges that our kids deal with. If we go around any circle of athletes on any team and we ask them, what do you think limits you the most when you play? Okay, we simple question. Okay, everybody at the table, tell me, what do you think is the biggest limiting factor or two or three of the biggest limiting factors to being really successful on game day? Inevitably, almost all of them talk about mental performance stuff. They almost never talk about physical attributes. They very rarely talk about, oh, I don't feel like I'm in shape or don't feel like I'm fast enough or I don't feel like I can locate this fastball or this you know, off-speed pitch in the strike zone. I just don't have that skill. They almost never say that. Almost inevitably, and I'm talking like 90% and up, on every roster we ask that question to, they all talk about mental performance challenges or stress or anxiety. But as a field of professionals who help athletes develop, we don't spend a lot of time working on developing how people deal with stress and anxiety and working on their mental performance. We spend tons of time on their physical development, but we spend very little time on their mental performance or mindfulness development. Um, And fear for our kids is fear of failure and fear of failure in sports ultimately boils down to this. It boils down to being embarrassed in public. Mm -hmm. That's not specific to sports, but that's how it plays out in sports. I mean, what is fear of failure? If you are doing a workout on your own and you don't get every rep of that workout and nobody sees it, most people are pretty okay with that. But if you screw something up on game day in front of fans and cameras and your family and opponents who are heckling you and officials and you're in public and you are you are failing in public it's public embarrassment that most people fail so we know that right and we because of the people that we've been able to place around the athletes at duke because of the conversations that we have every day we've identified that as one of the major things that challenges our kids Mm -hmm. so we want to help them work on it right away Um, and i'm hoping that other people around the country are doing the same thing it raises the level, right? Rising tide raises all ships. So, would you say this is a concept that's evolved? So, everything you just described, but you said you spend a lot of time on their technical, their strength, their commute, like everything that sure. makes them good at what they do. Yeah. So, is this a shift where people? I know sports psychology has been around forever. I'm not. I'm not right. saying that they're. That's been people have been naive to that, but I'm curious, like the percentage of how much time you're spending there, or to your point, how early you're getting in to start to address it. I would hope that. As an industry, there is a big shift happening right now. I can tell you that I do see a shift in my part of that world. Um, I certainly am trying to be someone who pushes stuff in that way, in what I do, Mm -hmm. in the part of the world that I, you know, the things that I can control, so to speak, the people that I can help, the people that I see every day. But I would hope that our industry is developing professionals in all these different kind of sub-niches of the field that are thinking that way and are helping kids operate that way. I don't necessarily think it's a generational thing or a millennial thing. Like you said, I right. don't think we need to have like big, you know, I, I'm not making these big blanket statements. It's only my experience of what I've seen. 
you know, I've had the opportunity to work with thousands of athletes now, which is great because I've got this big tapestry of all these different kids with all these experiences. And what I've drawn from that is that, yes, that this has always been the biggest challenge for athletes, especially young athletes. Mm -hmm. And up until the recent past, it hasn't been something that's been addressed at all. Um, yeah. And I think, or at least talked about. At right? least talked Maybe about. Maybe behind right. closed doors, you've got sports yeah. psychologists working with individual athletes. But and I think in some sports, you see some of that being driven by the professional organizations at the professional level. And I think some sports, you actually see it being driven more at the collegiate level mm-hmm. because it's not a business for us, right? And a lot of pro right. sports function as businesses. They have to, right? Yeah. They are profitable organizations, hopefully, right? right? They've got to sell tickets. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't care about their athletes. Of course they do. But they have right. a literal yeah. bottom line that they have right. to worry about. Our job is to help people grow up. Yeah. And... It, best job, best job in the world, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And and to boil it down, like uh, I consider myself just a helper. Like our yeah. job is to help people, and it's there's a lot of things you could. You know, I help people. Dot dot dot. Right? You could put a million statements after that yeah. in my world, but at the end of the day, I'm helping people. And if I'm helping people, then I should be concerned about all the things that make their development tough. Whether it's a physical challenge, a mental challenge, a psychological challenge, some sort of stress. And, you know, another thing that a lot of college ath- or high school athletes don't realize that we're trying to teach our collegiate athletes more now is that there is a direct connection, very tangible connection between the stress and anxiety that they feel and their physical development. And I'm talking measurable connection. Uh-huh. You know, we spend a lot of time, me and our yoga folks and our mindfulness people, teaching our athletes how learning to control their breath can help them control their heart rate. And when they can control their heart rate, they have better control over how they perform and how they train and how they practice and their stress levels and their study skills and their communication skills. And I'm talking about measurable things. If I have better control over my breathing rate, my breathing rate helps me control my heart rate. And that's the only way that I can control my heart rate. I have no other physical means of controlling my heart rate other than my breathing rate. Right. That has a direct impact on my hormones and my glands that secrete biochemicals. Mm-hmm. And those things are what drive my body. So if, not, if I'm not able to have a good control over those physical systems, then the mental piece of it is much, much harder to do. Right. But as soon as I can get kind of harness the, the one or two physical things that I'm able to control that connect my the different parts of my nervous system with the physical parts of my body mm-hmm. the more control i have over my moods and my stress levels my ability to sleep well my organizational skills my communication skills like i mentioned mm-hmm. all of these things that are connected to i mean literally every industry out there um, right. that it, every development of you know any kind of ability or skill or right. learning program so, and I, one more question, and I there's probably could talk about it for a long time, but I do think it's important to mention, given your background and what you've seen, what advice do you have around the nutrition and fitness and burnout and, and just the holistic approach to, um, you know, you mentioned multiple sports, and sure. I have actually, it's been very frustrating as a parent that 
my kid that wants to play multiple sports can't because of the commitment and the expectations of club sports and other mm-hmm. sports. So it's like they want them to pick in eighth grade mm-hmm. the sport they want to play. And so you have to end up pissing people off if you want your kid to play multiple sports. Mm-hmm. Because somebody, some coach feels like they're not getting the best of that kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's irritating. <laughs> and I worry about burnout because I think when you play multiple sports, then your body is working in different ways and that's better for them as they're developing and growing. But then certainly from a nutrition standpoint, sleep, the, the mindfulness, like I think our young people don't fully comprehend the impact that all of that can really have on performance. Yeah. And because they're innately good at things and they can run fast mm-hmm. and maybe they're good at just, you know, they don't think about, oh, I could be that much better mm-hmm. if I'm really intentional about what's going in. Yeah. So I'm just curious your perspective on that and, you know, realistically, yep. you know, for like 15, 16, you know, 18 year olds, like what, what is some advice that you have for them? Okay, three things, and the first two will be really fast. Number one, college coaches value multi-sport athletes. So high school coaches that are listening to this, stop operating the other way because you are shortchanging the kids that you coach. And if you're telling younger athletes that that's not the case, then you are actually lying to them, and they're going to hear a different message from a college recruiter and then the kid's going to wonder what's going on. Right, they're going to because they trust. Go back in time. They trust. They trust their youth coaches and their high school coaches, and their club and travel coaches. And they don't know the college recruiting coaches as well yet, but they're trying to get into a college program somewhere. So you've just got to believe, and whatever person with any kind of credibility will tell you this. Hopefully, is out there. We at the collegiate level highly value multi-sport athletes for all the reasons that you've mentioned um, and other ones. Number two, a really challenging thing for that we talk about a lot is we're trying to develop this really strong culture of servant leadership and caring about people around you more than you care about yourself and not thinking about yourself as much. And we run up against a recruiting process with younger people who are for the last few years of high school being packaged for college, which in some ways necessarily means that everything they hear is about themselves from maybe sophomore year up through senior year because everything they're doing is trying to get themselves into a college sport program. And what that disconnect means is that a lot of kids, when they get to that freshman year in college, and hopefully at a good place where they're teaching these kinds of things about caring about other people more than you do about yourself, they run up into that wall and say, well, everybody's been telling me that it's about me. It's about me, 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 me for three years or more, right? Right. And now you're telling me it's not about me at all. And so we've got to kind of nurture that when the kid gets there. And we've, you can't just say everything you heard is wrong, right? right? Because we don't know the kids that well right away. But we've got to help them open their eyes a little bit. See, you know, the college world is definitely a bubble, but it's a slightly bigger world than the bubble they just came from. Right, right. Um, and we're trying to help them jump from that small bubble to the medium bubble into the real world after that. So that's kind of the second part is that you've got to realize that even though you have to, to some degree, you have to kind of put this brand and this package together around yourself to make yourself marketable, so to speak, into a college program. 
that the best way that you can present yourself to those colleges is about how good a person you are and how much you care about other people and teammates and loyalty and those kinds of things that we talked about earlier, the kind of cultural pieces and the soft skill pieces. And then the third part is this, and and getting to the kind of burnout, stress, and recovery. Um, None of this stuff happens in a vacuum, right? Physical development doesn't happen in a vacuum. Skill development doesn't happen in a vacuum. Every one of these things that you mentioned with stress and physical burnout and sleep and nutrition and organizational skills and self-care and mindfulness and mental performance, all these kind of different buzzwords that we've used today, all of these things are interconnected. So my job essentially on a daily basis is to try to connect the dots for the kids and to help them understand that, okay, one of the things that we want to work on with you in this hypothetical example might be getting your legs stronger so that you can run faster so that you're an asset to our team so that you can help us win games. But that's not one thing that happens by itself. They've got to understand how that specific goal is interconnected to what that's going to do to them. Right. Well, necessarily, we're going to take you outside your comfort zone. We're going to challenge you. You're going to be tired. You're going to be sore. You're going to have some sleepless nights. But we want to help you navigate all of the stress that that places on you. Right. Some of it is necessary stress. Some of it is unnecessary stress. And understanding that stress is a really big world. And there's things within it that are acceptable. And there's things within it that should never be acceptable. Um, We can stress your muscles and your soft tissues by putting you through a hard workout, but then we've got to take care of those muscles and soft tissues when it's done. Mm -hmm. We can stress you to a degree mentally by challenging you to do something that you're uncomfortable with, but then we have to put it in context and have you understand why it was important and how you're getting better because of that, and then get you back in your comfort zone. We can't keep you outside your comfort zone all the time. That leads to really bad stuff. If kids can't identify a comfort zone, that leads to really bad stuff. Again, my job is really interconnecting these dots and having somebody understand that you need to learn how to train really hard every day, put a big load on your body physically because your body will then respond and adapt to that load by growing a little bit bigger Mm -hmm. and getting a little bit stronger and a little bit faster. But then you've got to fuel your body with the right stuff. So we need to have a nutritional plan that isn't just um, splashy and looks good and is tweetable, right? It's got to be a nutrition plan that's actually designed for you to get better at your sport and recover from the training that you do for your sport, right? Because nutrition is way more about your training than it is about game day. Mm -hmm. If you've gotten to game day and you haven't spent time during the week following a really good nutritional support program, game day is not going to be very good anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, It happens all in the background. Um, And sleep and uh, stress mitigation and um, all of these other things that help you recover from your practices and your conditioning and your training programs and allow you to connect those dots and have your week in that example, whether it's in the off season or the in season, be a successful, productive week. All of those different pieces are important and none of them are more important or less important than other ones. We talk about how there aren't any big moments Coach K had a really good quote about this. Um, I, I think it was last year he was talking about uh, playing against UNC and, you know, they're your big rival. Did the guys do anything different to get up for a big game against UNC? Right. It's the best rivalry in sports, et cetera, et cetera. And he was like, 
He's like, we don't have any big rivals. We just have rivals. He's like, there's no big moments. It's yeah. just, there's a moment here and a moment there. And a mo- it, you're making it a big moment. And if you're making it a big moment, you probably aren't prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of it that way. We, yeah. we never want to have to rise to the occasion. We always want to fall back on our level of preparation. And if we are preparing kids through all these things we just talked about to be ready for a game day or a job interview or an exam or a meeting with somebody that might recruit them into a future job um, or a big moment or I shouldn't say big moment or a moment with their family or something, something in their life that's important. If we're doing the right types of preparation each week, then those kids should be ready to handle anything. Right, and that's right. kind of the goal is three percent of our athletes at best will go pro. Right, three percent right. at best will go pro. Ninety percent of ninety-seven percent of our kids will become professionals in something other than their sport. So while I'm preparing kids, people might think that you know, oh, this guy's got the best athletes in the world. No, I don't. I've I've got I don't know five hundred and fifty Olympic athletes, something like that. You can do the math. Not yeah. many of them are going pro, right. at least in their sport. So everything that we're helping them learn and everything that they're developing, all these soft skills and these, these kind of cultural impressions will help them be better at whatever they do Yeah. Um, if we're focusing on those things in an interconnected way. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so tell me a little bit just about your background and how, were you an athlete as a kid? Like how early did you know that this was something, one that was a job and that you know you wanted to pursue? Sure. Uh, so I was kind of like a, uh, obsessed athlete when I was a kid. I wasn't great at anything. <laughs> I was not good enough to play in college at, at any competitive level. Um, I played soccer like, you know, every American kid does before, <laughs> I don't know, six or seven. I played soccer for a while when I was young. I played basketball and I kind of leaned into basketball more. Mm-hmm. Um, and basketball had been my passion like later into life too. Um, I don't play much anymore cause I do a lot of other stuff now. But um, I had always been passionate about play. For me, it wasn't even passionate about competitive sports. It was just being physical and having a ball and doing something where I was dirty and tired. And mm-hmm. I just loved it. And it, early on, it didn't matter what I was holding, so to speak. <laughs> I just wanted right. to do that. Right. Um, you know, I'm also of an age where um, the stuff that's in place now, the infrastructure around like recruiting and you know, there was no internet, there was, you know, there was no, there weren't a lot of travel leagues, there weren't a lot of uh, big tournaments, and um, I'm not from a family that was really hyper-competitive or hyper-athletic, so I didn't have any pressure from, you know, my folks or anybody else in the family to be like, you have to be good at this, you have to do that, it was more, we want you to do what you love and play and be physical and be outside, and um, so for that, it was really just a joy thing. And I think that's yeah. probably a major reason why I got back to this field or just got back to being around sports as a professional is just the joy and being around playing stuff, yeah. which I think is pretty valuable. Um, it might sound a little, you know, well, okay, do something important, but I think it's, um, I think it's pretty cool. I was not, uh, involved in any kind of academic athletic or exercise science, anything as an undergrad. I was a communication major. Oh, so um, Nice. Um, and uh, small world. There you go. Um, so I didn't even know that this stuff was out there. Right. Um, and, you know, I was in school from 94 to 98 as an undergrad. The world of strength and conditioning was almost non-existent, at least in the public mindset at that yeah. point. So there wasn't really anything that I knew about as an opportunity out there. 
Um, I knew that I really liked being around college campuses. Yeah. I mean, I had a really good time in college. Um, my friends were awesome, and it was a GW is a very social place, and it's an awesome city. Um, but I had no idea that I wanted to be around sports or that I could be around sports as a professional. So I did a couple jobs over the first couple of years that I was just miserable. Um, I even considered law school. I went mm-hmm. to work at a law firm for a year as a paralegal and really cool people, but just was bored out of my mind. Knew pretty early that I was definitely not going to do it. Yeah. Um, I went and I worked for the government for a little while. I temped for a little while. And then I came back to GW and worked in student activities and kind of event management stuff. Uh-huh. And I think that's it, what really kind of cemented my love for being back on campus. Um, yeah. So I kind of knew probably early on, even before I got into this field, that I was higher ed. You wanted that to I wanted to be around higher ed. Yeah. Um, and I think it was, you know, it it it's just an energy thing, right? I want to say that it was this lofty ideal of teaching and developing. And that, I mean, I was 25 or something, right? 26. Right. No, nobody that's 25 or 26 really thinks in lofty ideals. I just, I probably felt just really high energy stuff being on campus. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still a great positive outlook on college campuses. Like we can do anything. Yeah. It's, it's, it is the group of people that are going to change the world, right? right? Whatever the right. next change in the world is going to be, it's probably going to come from college campuses. So I think that was an indicator to me that I wanted to be in the college sphere somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, definitely in college, as part of continuing to play sports and just be active, I got into the gym a lot more and loved that. Um, and started to really kind of hear some rumblings that there was an opportunity to do this type of thing, whether it was personal training or whether it was called strength conditioning yet or whatever, yeah. that there might be an opportunity to do this. And while I love being on campus, I couldn't stand being in an office. Um, I was just, it was, it was too much, I had too much energy to stay with my butt in a seat for too long. Right. Um, so I liked being around the people I was being around, again, like I did at the law firm, for example, but I was just bored with the work that I was doing. The badness um, the, Exactly, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I just felt trapped in the walls, closing right. in, they kind of trapped, trapped inside. I need to be outside in the sunlight, right? Right. Um, so my wife at that point, who I'd met in college, um, was working at American University. Mm-hmm. Um, she was working in continuing ed there. And we basically both decided at the same time, we're young, we don't have kids yet, you know, we've got the means to kind of figure things out at this point, uh, that we wanted to take a year and go do stuff that we loved and look into law school, uh, not law school, into grad school, um, and just kind of use grad school as a conduit to figure out something that we were really passionate about. So we moved back to Florida where her family lives. Uh, we spent a year there. We applied to grad schools. I did some prerequisites. I figured out that there was actually this world of strength and conditioning that could like mm-hmm. amazingly work in and right. like make some money and not a lot, but <laughs> be a professional. Um, and so we both went back to grad school at the same time. We both went to Springfield College in Massachusetts. And what was your degree in? Your, your so my master- graduate degree is in applied exercise science. Okay. Um, Springfield College is this little liberal arts school in Western Mass. It's got like a couple thousand undergrads and like less than a thousand grad students, and it's a powerhouse in strength conditioning, physical therapy, athletic training, coaching. Um, It was originally established, you know, early 1900s or late 1800s or something as a training school for the YMCA. So it always had that relationship to the YMCA. And the kind of what they their motto is like spirit, mind, and body, and like connecting mm-hmm. all these things together. Mm-hmm. So they weave that into everything they do there, every degree. 
Um, it's a type of school where every student has to take phys ed classes, including grad students. Which I thought was awesome. Yeah. So like I took indoor rock climbing, I took golf. <laughs> Amy took a skiing class. She yeah. learned how to ski. And she's from Florida and she doesn't like the winters. But she figured, hey, I might do something that's fun. Right. Um, and then became like a really good skier. So we were grad school for two years. A big part of the program there is obviously coaching, hands on. I mean yeah. you can't you can't learn how to coach without coaching. So I worked in the weight rooms there. I did internships at Harvard, and I did field work at Holy Cross, uh, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which is about 90 minutes away. Yeah. Um, and my family's from the Boston area, so we were close to back there, and we were able to see them all the time, and it was great. Um, the winters weren't great, but the rest of it was great. Yeah. And through my internship at Harvard, um, I was able to make really good connections and then got hired back there when they had a coaching change. One of their coaches left. So I went from my field work at Holy Cross to work at Harvard for, ended up there for five years. Um, so there for five years, I came to Duke in February of 2009, and I'm almost at 11 years yeah. now. So. I love that you took a break to figure some things out. and I feel It was like the gap year before the gap I, year yes, existed. <laughs> yeah, but also um, a strategic gap year, right? So mm-hmm. I think the thing that I love about your story, and it's something that we talk a lot on this podcast, which is, it's rarely a straight line. It's yeah. hard to know what you want to be or what you're going to do. And I think it's a hard question to ask people at 18 or 22. or 20. You know, I think we're all just learning and through your experiences, you figure out what do you love to do? What gives you energy? What gives you joy? And right. and we're got, I think we're getting much better even in the corporate space to say, you know, what strengthens you and let's optimize that. And right. let's figure out there's other people that can, you don't have to white knuckle things. You don't have to like square box and around hall. You know, we don't have to start with like, here are three things you can be doing better. Let's just talk about what gives you joy, what you're good at, and framework towards that. So the fact that you knew, and and probably not when that was not as common, to take that step back and say, what do I love doing, and is there an opportunity to do that? Well, I I think to a degree it was very intentional, but Mm -hmm. I think to another degree it was also very organic, and I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. We talk about that with our staff a lot at work when we do leadership development Mm -hmm. stuff with our like my group of people that I work with, like we talked about earlier, being intentional and being purposeful and being good decision makers, et cetera. But we think that it operates more effectively when it happens organically. And you talk about, okay, that that formal conversation of three things that da, 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 da. Well, my experience with doing a lot of interviews for interns and younger Mm -hmm. staff members and assistant coaches and stuff is that people usually have pretty canned answers to questions like that and if they've done their homework they've probably rehearsed sure. for those kinds of meetings or those kinds right. of interviews so you're getting inevitably what they think you want to hear right um, so we're very intentional when we have those conversations do those interviews about not asking things that way we don't ask questions or have conversations in ways where people have the opportunity to say things that they think we want them to hear. Yeah. We're trying to actually learn something about them. Right. Um, I like to consider myself like maybe a little bit of a master of like the screwball question for those yeah. kinds of things. Okay. Because I try to just kind of like lob something in from the side mm-hmm. to get an honest, legitimate answer, or just as importantly, to hear how somebody handles things on their feet. Getting a question like that. Right. right? Things on their feet. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I want to be surrounded by good people. It's, right. a, it's a lot less important to me 
for an athlete to be the best in their position in their sport in that recruiting class than it is for them to be a good person who wants to get better and help their teammates win. Right. And we very, in a nice way, but in a very direct way, let them know when they get to campus to begin their career with us that we are not recruiting them anymore. Right. Right? Right. And I have the luxury because, you know, I'm very fortunate where, you know, my salary, so to speak, doesn't hinge on wins and losses, where a coach has that pressure. Right. And I, I get that, right? But when I'm helping somebody develop, I very nicely tell them I do not care where their ranking in the recruiting class was. Mm-hmm. I don't care what their hype video looked like. I don't care how many Twitter followers they have. I don't care how much money their parents have. And on the flip side of it, I don't care if their journey was tougher or easier than the next person any more than I care or don't care about the next person. Right. I just care about them and I want to help them get better. Mm-hmm. So. There's a great, I think he's in Maryland, there's a, a powerlifting gym that's run by a coach who works with disabled vets and folks with disabilities, and, and they're doing like competitive powerlifting. Mm-hmm. And he's got pros and like international level guys and young kids, this whole like variety of people. Um, and he does these great videos, and there's this one guy named Miles, who's my son's name too, so I always watch this video, yeah. um, who's got cerebral palsy, and he's a competitive weightlifter. And he like documents these like, I mean, it's like talk about joy. Like this kid just loves it. So they do these videos, but the coach in the background is always shouting out things like, you're not special. Like you're not any more special than the dude over there with one leg. And that dude who lost his leg while he was deployed isn't any more special than you are. Wow. Right? You're all special or it it doesn't matter. Like that doesn't matter. Like we're not going to care about you more because you only have one leg. We're not going to care about you less. Right. right. We're not going to care about you more because you have cerebral palsy and it's hard to get up in the morning and do stuff than we are about the guy that's got to attach part of his leg when he wakes up in the morning. Like that's not their role. Yeah. Their role is to care about both of those people and help both of those people equally in and push too, both of those right, people. Which I love. It's Absolutely. Very present yeah. focus. So you're like yeah. in that moment and there's goals to, you know, there, I think that's something that college athletes, especially freshmen, need to hear. And they don't need to hear it in a nasty way. Sure. Right? It's not contentious. Right. Um, it's that they need to hear that the expectations are high, but that the expectations of how they go about their day and how they do things yeah. are very high. Yeah. They know that the expectation, like, these kids don't need to be motivated to win. Right. <laughs> They've done everything to such a high degree at such a stressful, in such a stressful environment just to be able to get into Duke. Right. Right? We don't yeah. need to motivate them much to play hard. Right. Like we shouldn't have or to. Be competi- right. Or be competitive, right? right? They're all competitive, right? They wouldn't. Most of them were the best athlete at their high school and the best student at their high school. Right. So think of it that way. Those right. are really the kids we're looking at. Right. Best athlete at the school and maybe one of the best because three other ones didn't get in. Right. right? So they're competitive already. If I'm going to challenge the kid, it's going to be about challenging them about how they go about their business, right. about how they do things. Are they really willing to put in the hard work that we talked about yeah. on a daily basis to develop themselves physically and to work on their mental performance and be in the moment and be where their feet are and be good people? Because ultimately, when you get to the pro level or we get access to have conversations with people that are the best at the world at what they do, yeah. those are the things that matter, right? Yeah. Everybody's talented when you get to the pros. Right. Everybody thinks about their sleep. Everybody thinks about eating right. Everybody takes care of their bodies. And if they don't, 
that's the sport is selecting them out, right? right? If they right. don't perform, they don't get a paycheck. And right. it's a business up there, so if they're not doing the, those things are just a given at yeah. the professional level. Because if you're not doing that and someone's paying you $10 million a year, they're gonna pay somebody else that $10 million a year. Right. Um, so when we talk to folks at that level, they're not even thinking about connecting the dots that we talked about. It's all soft skills. Right, right. A 35-year-old Hall of Fame pitcher is all about how he takes care of himself and his family and his business. Right. It's not about how hard do I work out. When he trains, he's definitely going to train hard. He right. knows he has to. Right. That's what gets him to be a Hall of Fame level guy. So let me ask you this. I, I want to be sensitive to your time. In terms of your own journey and everything that you've talked about, when you think about your own challenges and successes, like what are some of the things that have um, motivated you to be this way, right? Because I think you have a really great perspective and this ability, I mean, working hard and, you know, all of the things you've talked about in terms of culture and servant leadership and, you know, just that, that motivation and where that comes from. I'm curious about that. Um, I very, that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do this, but I don't look very far for heroes, mm-hmm. you know? And again, I don't want to get too lofty and right. whatever. Um, the people that inspire me are the people that are around me all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, my family is very inspiring. My my kids and my wife are the people that drive me. I think if you have to look outside your close circle for people that motivate you and inspire you, you might want to reevaluate your close circle. <laughs> um, yeah. um, really great advice. And you know, this is funny because when we ask our athletes this stuff too, it's always it, this to me is a testament that we're recruiting good kids yeah. at Duke is they answer those kinds of questions like, oh, you know, it's the people around me. Right. You know, I certainly think there's professionals in our field and athletes that when I was younger that I was, I idolized. Mm-hmm. I don't idolize people anymore. Right. Um, we talked about this earlier. I'm not like that big of a sports fan anymore, <laughs> which is right. ironic. People might not think, you know, you do what yeah. I do every day. But for me, it's not about like this big moment of winning yeah. this game. Right. You know, it's about how can I help people? Um, so I would say, you know, the people that I think about in this area every day are certainly my kids and my family. Yeah. Um, my oldest daughter is almost 15. We adopted her when she was nine months. Mm-hmm. Serious, serious health problems, developmental problems. Um, and the challenges that she's faced have changed as mm-hmm. she's gotten older. Um, they haven't necessarily gotten easier, but they've changed. Um, but this was a kid who was, you know, doing five or six doctor's visits a week when she was an infant um, up through being a toddler. And um, I, I don't need to look much further than that for someone that's gonna inspire, you to inspire me and be, you know, and, and smile through adversity. Um, right. People that, I and mean, she was bubbly and adorable and tiny. She was like less than three pounds when she was born. And, you know, it's not that hard to be inspired or get emotional right. about a little kid like that who is, you know, fighting through that stuff. Right. Um, so we talked earlier about gratitude and perspective. Mm-hmm. When I click back to like, I think everybody's got one anchor of gratitude or perspective that they think of. Yeah. All right. And if you don't, I think you should try to think Why of one. Yeah. Um, I, without even thinking about it, I automatically have this image in my head of holding her when she was really little. I can't remember when it was. She probably yeah. a year, a year and a half or something. Um, but when I think of those two words or I talk about that, that pops up in my head right away. Um, 
I have a very easy perspective to go back to, right. to bounce everything off of. I It yeah. very, very much grounds me. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, she's become a very, very good, very high-level competitive equestrian rider oh, wow. with kids with disabilities and to the point of, like, competing nationally and winning titles and all this stuff. So to be, to be able to see that journey yeah. of where we know that she started with all these major question marks about what she was going to be able to do with yeah. her life and her health and her development up to what she's able to do now, um, that's very easy for me. Um, so in a way, like, it, I'm thankful that I've got that that yeah. very easily keeps me grounded. Yeah. Some people don't have things that they can think of that pop into their mind right away that keep them grounded, and they've got to do a little bit more mental work to come up with something. Um, and, you know, being able to have those anchors, I think, are really huge. Um, and then just to see, you know, how my family has grown and developed um, mm-hmm. and to see how much time and effort and care and love that my wife has put into that, I mean, that's, you don't need much more than that, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need much more than that. Um, All right, my last question is just uh, counsel and advice you would give to your younger self. So one of the mm-hmm. things that I feel like, um, hopefully if you know young adults are listening to this, it's interesting to hear people that have been through it and have some time to like reflect back. Is there any counselor advice you would give either to yourself or these students, right? You're, you're surrounded by this young talent all the time. So anything that for you personally that really was a game changer? And I know we've talked a lot already about some of those characteristics, but just for you personally. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a, a tough question. And I think at the heart of it is, is just being really honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of young people aren't very honest with themselves. And I think, again, it comes back to that, you know, again, speaking from my perspective in my professional world, it's that fear of failure being public embarrassment, right? That's not just sports, though. That's, that's yeah. life, yeah. right? There's a, a lot, lot of different of parts of life. At that age, and right? and that's the thing yeah. is the social piece um, that I think a lot of kids carry around a lot of stress and fear of, social stigma and these things that we value as college coaches and recruiting college athletes that we want kids to work on and display are the very things that these kids are either uncomfortable or unwilling or afraid to display and work on and develop and admit to. So I would, for I mean, for myself, I never went through a big recruiting process for to be a college athlete. I just right. wasn't good enough, you know. Right. As I came up socially and developmentally, I wish that I had been a little bit more willing to be vulnerable in front of other people mm-hmm. and ask for help more. For a lot of time in school, it, things were pretty easy, but I didn't push myself very hard. Um, and so I probably limited the opportunities to higher level stuff that I could have challenged myself with because I was very comfortable coasting on the easy stuff, you know? Um, And whether it was in class or whether it was just being around people that, you know, I thought I was comfortable with and were cool and whatever, um, but not, you know, always putting myself in a group of people that challenged me. Um, I mean, if you want it in a nutshell, try to find a room where you're not even close to the smartest person. Right. Right? There's a great line about, you know, never want to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't even want to be close to the smartest guy in the room. I'm always around people where I'm never the best athlete in the room, which is nice. Um, but I never want to be the smartest person in the room either. Um, that can be very, um, 
that can yes. close you off. Right. Um, so I would I would say that you know a lot of what we talk about in sports is we talk about that fear of failure and public embarrassment and like what do you do to get yourself ready for moments where that's going to happen mm-hmm. and be able to stay in the moment and perform and clear that clutter and help remove those distractions that's going to happen in every facet of life in some way for young people and to be able to find some opportunities to address that and surround yourself with people that will help you with that and not push that stuff away when you're younger Um, because ultimately it's going to make the development of everything else that much easier well thank you so much this was amazing i really appreciate your time and your insight i feel like this is going to be really helpful to a lot of young athletes so hopefully they'll tune in and they can benefit from your experience awesome. thank you, thank so you much. for having me yeah, yeah. thanks, Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Dan, for your time and sage advice. Uh, Some of the topics that really stood out for me, uh, gratitude, servant leadership, intention, hard work, uh, the power of discomfort and not looking cool, uh, mental performance, and even talking about being a multi-sport athlete. Uh, Really so many great points and such great advice. I love that Dan said he has a wow moment every day at his job. Uh, We should all be so lucky. (laughs) And a huge thank you to my producer, Missy, as my producer, and also for introducing me and our audience to Dan. Uh, We have great news that in addition to Relatable being on iTunes and our Teresa Freeman Associates website, uh, Relatable is also now on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, all your streaming apps. So take a look there if you haven't already. And as a reminder, if you like this discussion or other discussions that we've had, please subscribe and rate Relatable and leave us comments and reviews. That helps us in terms of getting more traffic and additional listeners. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable.